Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, putting up with what happened this morning, <laughs> and thanks for helping bring some energy uh, energy to the team. But um, let's start with a little bit more about the settings for where you were born and what life was like when you were a kid. Sure. Um, so, like I said, I was born in Charlottesville. Well, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was born in Richmond. Um, my parents were. Uh, hippies, I guess, would be a good way to describe them, named after Bob Dylan, and oh, cool. you know, they made some fairly bad life choices early on, so moved around a lot, but, um, you know, grew up there, then went on to college in Philadelphia, um, spent, went from college to the Peace Corps, where I lived in the Russian Far East for a year and taught English, came back, went to law school, um, at, back in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia, then... Man, leave it to an attorney to be there, concise so. and to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you missed. Yeah. He missed a couple, of, just a couple of steps. Like, yeah, what not. were you? Some of us here know what you're like now. Yeah. And you know, you're the the polished, responsible, organized uh, guy that we all uh, see and respect. Yeah. Were you always like that? Were you like that at uh, seven? Were you wearing a suit back then? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, and, and I, I don't say this to flatter myself. I mean, most of my family kind of jokes that I never was a kid. Um, and a little bit was, you know, had to do with my parents. Um, you know, my brother and I kind of raised each other. Um, I spent a lot of time as a kid, you know. I was the one who set the alarm and made the coffee for mom and got her out of bed and got her to work and got my brother and I made, I was making, you know, I my, my my daughter hates it when I say this, but you know, at age ten, I was making my own lunch and you know, and doing all of that stuff and getting the getting my brother and I ready for school. Um, so it was always a little bit uh, a little bit a little bit serious. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely had some unserious years in college, but, but um, mostly serious. You know, to to make up for lost time. But, uh, but yeah. So. Did did you um, <clears throat> did you feel like it was an extra burden, or was it just uh, what you thought life was like? Um, I mean, it was. I, I was I don't know that I was really conscious of it being a burden. I mean, at, at one point, um, when my parents separated, uh, one of my, uh, or my my mom's uncle, who was a bit of a grandfather to me and a pretty good role model, said, now you take care of your mom. And I think I just kind of took him at face value and, and did that. Um, I think it's later on, I kind of wrestled with the, the, that history. And, you know, there's some regrets there. But, you know, I don't spend a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. I mean, I had family members who made sure we got a good education. You know, we were never homeless or anything like that. You know, a lot of people deal with, you know, much larger hardships than having a sculpture for a mom who can't get out of bed in time for school. You know, it's not... My mom was an artist, by the way. Mm. Um, <clears throat> my mom was an artist and my dad was an actor. And um, mm. my brother works for a hedge fund and I'm a lawyer. My mom thinks she... Well... She she used to say, "Where where did I go wrong?" You know, with with. You know, she. I mean, you know, we, we we got all closer as I got. She found a and stuff. So it was, you know, it was not like I said. I mean, I'm mostly grateful that uh, you know I've got a really strong relationship with my brother. You know, we both went to really good schools, have had successful careers. We now live in Park City. I get to live in a ski town and have a have a real career. Like who else how many people get to do that? So No, absolutely. And I think that's what's amazing about your journey among many things. And I think that's what we'd love to learn about and unpack a little bit. Was it uh, 
what was it about your circumstances or about who you were and your brother was that made it so as despite the challenges you were able to make it was it the impact of this uncle uh, among other things yeah what made you what were you like were you organized in high school as well were you hard working <laughs> in high school uh, I, I was i mean i mean not, again I, it yeah. sounds it's weird it's it's weird telling you stories because some of it sounds a little bit Self-congratulatory, but um, well, but it, my uncle was—he was a huge influence. I mean, he was an administrator at Princeton. Mm. Um, when he died, while I was in college, there was a line out the door of the church of students that he'd influenced and taken under his wing. You know, when I was in high school, he used to send me clippings back before the internet, clippings from the New York Times saying you need to read this article. Wow, it was always um, put a huge priority on just intellectual development and really fostered my love of books and, and learning. Um, and, you know, and, 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 and that just, despite all of the, you know, chaos um, with my parents helped, you know, helped me kind of keep my eye on the prize a bit. Um, and I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be here without his influence. He was the one who, you know, when I got to high school age, um, he insisted that I go to boarding school because mm. um, he did, he, he really just saw that, um, both my um, my mom and my dad were not in a good place to raise a teenager, and mm -hmm. that I needed focus. And so, I ended up. I I was actually a little annoyed with him at the time because I ended up at this all boys school in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. But um, but it was it was good for me. I mean, it was you know every day of every day every hour of every day was scheduled, so I no longer had to um, take care of my mom, and I could focus on being a student and getting into a good college and stuff. So, you know, that was. Um, Fortunate also gave my mom the space to get herself together. And, you know, so that, you know, time, um, I mostly was grumbling about the lack of girls, but, you know, but it was, it was, it was, it, it was the right choice. Because so, you couldn't do the whole pool effect. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't you do couldn't that. You couldn't do that, yeah. no. <laughs> no. Um, it's, it's inspiring to hear the influence that your uncle had on you. And um, I actually don't think that in our conversations in the past, I really appreciated how much. Uh, I mean, I, I think for me, the bitter about of a childhood, I guess, about and being thankful for what I did. There are a lot of people, people much harder childhoods than I had, notwithstanding all of the chaos. But um, I'd, I'd love your take as someone very thoughtful who's gone through a boarding school experience. What your candid take uh, is on. So, um, I mean, for academically, it was great. I mean, my biggest class was 10 students, wow. right? I played three sports, you know, was in lots of, you know, clubs and was on the prefect board, which is the kind of like school council or whatever. Mm. Um, so it was great for me. It got me into a good college for sure. Um, did not prepare me very well for going to college because suddenly I got to college and nobody cared if I showed up for class, right? And you know, and I and at the time, I think I viewed college as sort of like, well, that was now I'm over that hump. I'm at school. I don't have to be a good student anymore. Mm. I'm at Penn. I don't have to show up for calculus class. And that was a mistake. I missed a, you know, my first two years in school were not as productive as they should have been. But um, boarding school, I think, generally does a good job getting you into school, but a pretty bad job of preparing you for mm. freedom when you get there. Uh, it also, I also developed a really unhealthy chip on my shoulder about rich kids um, that 
I carried it to Penn with me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I, I mean, mostly that was a little bit of envy, like kids who had all these advantages and stable homes and parents and were allowed to, you know, make mistakes. So. And you sensed that at the boarding school, I'm assuming, uh, uh, but did you feel that at Penn as well? Yeah, both. I mean, mm. for sure. I mean, at boarding school, you know, it's, you know, a lot of vacations where I would go home to Charlottesville and kids would go off to ski vacations in Colorado or wherever they were going. Mm. And then Penn was even worse because I'm going to people, going to school with people like Donald Trump Jr. who were just, you know, idiots um, that like, and I just, you know, I, I mean, it wasn't a, uh, it was something I, I, you know, I got over, but to this day, I, in my hiring decisions for my team and stuff like that, I tend to put my thumb on the scales for people who had to work for it. I appreciate that. What what did you what did you study as an undergrad, and did you know you wanted to go to law school? Is that no, no? Did? I mean, I had lawyers in my extended family, and didn't think that's what I wanted to do. So I started out and as a finance major in the Wharton undergraduate division. Uh, realized that that what I did not want to do was go be an investment banker mm. in New York. It seemed to be what everybody at Penn was doing when I was there. Investment banking and consulting were like, you know, 50% of the graduating class every year. Um, so I, about after my sophomore year, I actually took a year off and lived in Colorado, did a ski bum year. A friend of mine at Penn convinced me that, to just take a step back and he did that, you know, I was mostly paying my own bills anyway, so it didn't, it was actually a good year to like work. I, I lived in Colorado, but I worked three jobs, actually saved a lot of money and went back to school a little better off financially. Um, uh, but also managed to ski 75 days or whatever and had a, had a great year. Um, and I came only back 75, I was, Mike. I know yeah. I feel for you. Yeah. Only 75. <laughs> right. But that was, that was all I could do while working, you know, at a hotel <clears throat> bookstore and, um, and at a, a wow. deli. Um, and that was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, that was enough to pay for your tuition and living expenses? No, I mean, yeah. after financial aid and stuff like that, it was enough to basically pay for my rent for rent, the first I semester. Um, but it wasn't a lot of money. It felt like, you know, it felt like I'd done pretty well working. I was working like 80 hours a week, but also skiing every day. So, um, yeah, the energy we have at that age, isn't then, it amazing? Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I worked at a hotel where the tips were really good. So, um, but yeah, no, that was I mean, it was a great, great experience. I switched my major to history when I got back, and um, for the first time, got a had an opportunity in my last year to kind of just embrace frivolous learning, right? With no, it wasn't like a trade school anymore. It was just learning for its own sake, and that was that was awesome, and I loved it. And I loved history, and um, ended up majoring in history with a, a minor in political science, mostly focused on Soviet history, and then. The Peace Corps said, hey, would you like to go to Russia? And I said, yes, absolutely. I would love to go to Russia. So, um, and uh, and it's, I, the decision to go to law school wasn't really until I got out of the Peace Corps and suddenly I had to start paying my student loans and needed, needed, needed a professional degree. And you spent a year in Russia before as well? So um, I, had, <laughs> I had traveled to Russia once as an undergraduate in my mm -hmm. junior year, um, but to Moscow. The Peace Corps posted me in a city called Tobolsk, which is out on the border with China, um, basically Siberia, although technically Siberia is to the north. Um, and it was just a, it was a cool opportunity to just see, 
you know, Moscow is very different than the rest of Russia. And so I really wanted the opportunity to kind of see what the life was like in the rest of, in the provinces. I mean, um, and Habatos was a, was a, was an interesting city. It was a relatively open city. Um, and, you know, I, the Peace Corps was limited in its ability to do various things in Russia. The Russian government, the only thing they would allow the Peace Corps to do is teach English and so there's, there were days where I felt a little bit superfluous because the school where I taught had 13 English teachers already. Um, and I was mostly there just kind of window dressing, I guess. And um, But, you know, made some great friendships and, and had a year to really kind of see how people in that part of the world live. Um, you know, I'll, I'll never wait. I'll never complain about waiting in line at the post office again, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, it was also, you know, as, as streetwise as I thought I was after you know, four years in West Philadelphia, um, you know, Russia was an interesting place because, you know, I was one of three Westerners in the city where I was living. Um, so I a little bit had a target painted on my chest a lot of days, but, you know, I mean, it's, it was, it was, it was an adventure. So. What, what was guiding you, Dylan? What was guiding you to make these decisions, which ultimately, as you look back on them, were quite formative and likely very much the right decision uh, how, who was guiding that i mean it seems sheer dumb luck i mean today mm. it seems like it was there was some guiding principle but when i was in college i really um like i said i kind of got there and after the having to be the adult in the household growing up mm. um college felt like an opportunity to just do whatever i felt like doing that's how i ended up living in Vail for a year even though i was not a really great skier or, anything it just sounded like an adventure to have um my brother had the same path i mean he went and worked on a fishing boat in alaska after college and took some time off in college and lived in australia and surfed and you know we both were just like okay we've we've gotten to college you know we're we're on a reasonably straightforward trajectory towards some stability and success that we lacked as kids so let's have some fun now while we still can and I'm glad I did. I mean, I'm glad I, I made those decisions. I mean, I would not be nearly as content um, now if I'd gone straight to law school or something, and you know, like a lot of my peers at Penn did, um, and never had an opportunity to just kind of have some adventures. So, so you know, you jokingly said investment banking or law. Your brother went one way. Yeah. How did you choose? Well, and he then? used to make fun of me because after all of that going on about not wanting to be an investment banker, I went. I became an M&A and finance lawyer. And he said, well, you're now you're an investment banker's bitch, right? Um, so good job, right? Um, but, uh, sorry, that was a little inappropriate. You can edit that out of the podcast. But, um, that, that's going to be the quote he puts as the headline. <laughs> <laughs> How I became an investment banker's bitch. <laughs> Two edits now. <laughs> Um, so you went to law school and did you have a special focus there? Did you, um, did you look at all of the young men and women there and, uh, and say, I want to be different. I want to follow the same path. Yeah. I mean, so when I got out of the Peace Corps, I was, I thought long and hard about going into the foreign service that really mm. sounded appealing to me. I really wanted to live abroad, work, work with the State Department or USAID and just live in these car phone places. But, yeah. um, you know, I, my sort of 
you know, inherent conservatism got the better of me and, I, and law school seemed like a more stable, straightforward path. Um, so I, I went into law school, you know, not really knowing what area of law I wanted to practice. I spent my first summer with a big law firm doing multi-district litigation, decided that that zero-sum litigation game was just not for me, and um, sort of gravitated from there to transactional work, and, you know, and I've, I've loved it. I mean, I you know, to this day, even though now I oversee a legal department that does everything from litigation to employment law to transactional work, um, the one area I really roll up my sleeves and get involved personally is our, our deal work, so because doing deals is fun. For me, it's a, a solvable set of problems because everybody who comes to those tables, you know, wants to get the deal done um, and you just have to figure out a way to bridge the gap. And that is, for me, like the most satisfying part of my job. So I'd love for you to just give us some perspective to the audience and to me uh, as to the scale of the legal operation that you run in terms of what you can yeah. share publicly, number yeah. of transactions and number of teams. It's actually pretty unfathomable right, to have. You have a whole department yeah. of lawyers. That sounds like a fun team. That's a, well, I, mean, we I bet are, you guys have a great time. I mean, we're one of the bigger <laughs> outdoor gear companies in the world, right? We have, I guess we're up to 38 brands now, including some household names like Camelback and Bushnell, Camp Chef, Bell and Giro Helmets. Um, our operations are all over the country. We used to have a headquarters in Salt Lake, which is how I ended up here in Park City. Um, our head. Most of our corporate staff is now in Minnesota, but I'm not moving to Minnesota. Um, and so, you know, my team is spread out all over the place um, to cover because every one of our brands has their own site. Um, we have brands in California, Kansas City, Minnesota, um, you know, Idaho, a few other places. And aggregate revenues of uh, we're up to about three billion now. Three billion. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with with that many brands and. You know, some of our we we make such a wide variety of products from helmets that save people's lives. We also make a lot of hunting accessories. We make ammunition um, for mostly for hunting, uh, and you know that just it throws off a lot of a wide variety of issues. So I have eight lawyers and probably a total department size of twenty five people. Um, wow. You know, and it, you know that's to me as small as it really can be. I, I you know I'm not a empire builder. Um, but you know, there, I say this to my, our CEO quite often, there's no small business when it comes to legal support needs. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. he thinks in terms of revenue, right. But, um, you know, it's really about variety of products and, and, and intellectual property and issues they throw off and, you know, which I try to strike a good balance and I do a fair amount of benchmarking to make sure that we're not that we're getting some synergy out of a corporate legal department that's shared across all of our brands. So none of my lawyers do one thing. Everybody wears multiple hats. And how do you decide, this might be a little less interesting for some, but it's interesting to me, when you have a scale like that, how do you decide what to do in-house versus outsource? Yeah, it's actually it's a good question. Um, I mean, for me, the only reason to have in-house lawyers is because they can get to know the underlying business well enough to be proactive and get in front of things. Because in the legal world, an, an ounce of prevention is worth 100 pounds of cure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you never want to see th when things end up in litigation, it's because somebody did something stupid and something failed. Um, so lit and litigation is horribly expensive, right? I mean, you know, one high stakes commercial litigation can easily cost a million dollars. Um, 
and if it goes all the way through trial. Yeah. And so I try to strike that balance where if there's subject matter expertise we need for discrete things, mm -hmm. I get that outside. But for that day-to-day -day counseling, you know, in the business units, understanding what they're doing, helping them spot issues, helping under knowing their goals and figuring out ways to get them there safely. That's, that's where you really need in-house lawyers. And, and that's where, that's where I spend my money. I, I do have some subject matter specialists in intellectual property and, and, th and employment law and things that come up every day where it's just more cost effective to have internal subject matter experts. But for the most part, my lawyers are all generalists um, who, uh, you know, who, who really are just, just have a seat at the table to help issue spot. So, I mean, we do spend, we do, we do still spend a fair amount of money on outside counsel though. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, some of our business units throw off a fair amount of products liability litigation and things like that. So. When you say ammo. Well, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's surprising. I mean, ammunition actually does not throw off that much litigation, huh. um, particularly on the products liability side. Uh, hunters um, and shooters generally don't sue. Mm. Cyclists, on the other hand, um, do sue. When they, when they fall off a bike, Cyclists? they sue everybody, right? Including the, like... <laughs> The city that laid the roads, the people that made the bike, and the people who made the helmet that saved their lives. They, you know, so we, we get a fair amount of that. So. There's so many bad jokes that we could make right now. And I'm so bad, I'm not going to. And Anna's not here to stop me. Do you see how? Will you guys let her know? I didn't. I didn't. Um, you know, one of the interesting things um, about your company is you're so big, you're so broad, that you have, shall we say, left-leaning uh, left-leaning brands and right-leaning brands all under the same umbrella yeah and uh, I, um, I I presume that that's a constant balance and uh, probably a question you would prefer not to answer very often I because mean, well you no know, it's something we wrestle with and it's it's I mean it's not this isn't confidential information I mean that that tensions there right I mean we we sell you know we sell a lot of product to REI we sell a lot of product to Bass Pro right I mean and these mm -hmm. are very different stores serving very different consumers the vision for, for Vista was always that there are, um, you know, outdoor people who like the outdoors, they, there, there is common ground there, whether you're, whether you're a hunter or a skier or a mountain biker. Um, we have a Vista Outdoor has a corporate foundation that's very much focused on finding that common ground mm. and things that we care about at the foundation, getting kids off screen and screens and outside, protecting outdoor space. These things are issues that all outdoor enthusiasts care about um for our brand for our brands you know they're even our our hunting like bushnell which makes a lot of hunting and shooting accessories and our you know in belgero for example there are a lot of commonalities in supply chains mm -hmm. distribution legal and hr support needs right so that we do get a fair amount of synergy from the overall package even if on the surface you know there are some very different channels they're very different end consumers so for us, the, the important thing is to, to find those areas where there's common ground, where there's synergies to be had on the business side and common ground on the, the corporate um, mission, but also give our brands the space to develop their own cultures independently. Because for consumer brands generally, but for outdoor gear brands in particular, your brand culture is absolutely crucial mm -hmm. to your connection with your end user, right? So you go out to the Giro offices in Scotts Valley, you know, it's a wall of bikes and they're all, you know, they're all bicycle, they're all cyclists, right? They mm -hmm. all take rides together. That's part of their culture so that they can get to understand the needs of their end consumer design products that meet those needs. 
Same on our same on the Bushnell side, on our hunting side, in our ammunition businesses. Though you know, the, outdoor gear companies tend to be enthusiast companies, right? The people who work there are enthusiasts. We love to use the products. Um, now, our corporate staff is a little more diverse, a little more professional, but I think that just reflects that at the corporate level in HR and legal and finance, there's no, you know, there's there's no there's not as much need for that kind of core brand culture. But we all do like to get outside. I mean, I'm definitely more of a cyclist and skier and, than I am a hunter, but um, but my deputy general counsel is is a huge hunter, right? And so, you know, we and we work together every day to solve all these problems. So. Thanks for that perspective. <clears throat> We'll probably turn it over to the team. I want to touch on a topic you we haven't really brought up, so I'd love your perspective on, from a personal perspective, um, did your circumstances growing up impact your opinion on marriage and or having a family? Okay, that's a, that's a, um, a bit of a... Um, yeah, a, 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 a U-turn. <laughs> um, I mean... I think it did. I mean, I, you know, I certainly uh, place a very high value on, you know, a stable home mm. and providing a stable place for my child to grow up. I mean, I have a daughter. She's 10. She's amazing. Um, and my partner, Jean Marie, I mean, she and I have been together since law school. She was a former lawyer. She's now much happier as a yoga instructor and writer with a little more flexibility in her life one lawyer in the house was plenty um you know and and, and no no home life is perfect but yeah. you know for me um providing that stability and giving lila the space to be a kid was is is, is absolutely crucial and that's one of the most important things i do it's more important than any of this work stuff that we were just talking about i really appreciate that and sorry to keep it brief but i wanted to give them some perspective on on that as well and with that who's going to get us started True. Just to follow up on that, I, I find it fascinating how our upbringing affects our parenting and where you lean in terms of um, structure and guidance versus allowing your kids or those close to you to the space to make decisions. Um, where do you fall on that? How do you? How does your upbringing affect how you feel you should raise your daughter? Yeah, I mean, there's a, how should I raise my daughter and how do I raise my daughter? How, like, I'm far you, more... How do you think you should? Yeah, I mean, I'm far more indulgent than I probably should be. <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, and in it, when it boils over, it's often like, you know, in comparison to where my brother and I were at her age, you know, how responsible she is and how um, mature she is. Uh, but she's a kid, you know, she's 10, right? I mean, she's supposed to have some fun and she's um you know i i think the for me the the the, the important things and the things where my partners and i see very much eye to eye is that we want to raise her to be independent to think for herself speak her mind to find her own path um now there are days we feel like we might overcorrect it a little bit right when she gives me a five bullet point reason for why she doesn't have to brush her teeth you know, um, but like, but she does, she is a very strong willed, very smart kid. And, um, you know, and I, you know, mostly see my role is being there to provide a safe space for her to live her life, make some mistakes, learn from those mistakes, be a kid and, um, 
I think she's she's the kind of kid who'll find who'll find the right path for herself at some point. Who's next? I, I want to give Christy a chance as well. Yeah, I didn't uh, have anything. It's a great story. I always love these moments, so I appreciate you uh, sharing your story. Um, I'm going to ask you to try to be honest. Um, if your daughter became an artist or a, uh, a painter, like your mom may have aspired, um, how would you feel about that versus her becoming an attorney? I've told her that the only thing she can't become is an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> So I would I would absolutely support. I mean, she's actually a brilliant artist. She spends a lot of time doodling and sketching, and I see so much of my mom in her. Sometimes it's a little scary, um, but she uh, she you know if that's if that's what makes her happy, that's great. You know, I, I mean, I hope she'll also learn a sense of personal responsibility and and a work ethic that that and you know the judgment to make some better choices than my mom made um, when when she was particularly when she became. When, you know, I mean, I think what my, my mother struggled with was being a mom, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. was that was the hardest thing for her, because it, it came at a time where she just wasn't ready for it. And not that she was particularly young, she just still wasn't ready for it. Um, but, uh, you know, she eventually figured it out. I mean, my, you know, when I was, by the time I was in high school, she had switched from being an artist to being a teacher. And she was, mm -hmm. you know widely known in Albemarle County as like this fantastic art teacher that every student loved. And she had, you know, sixth graders who could, you know, tell you all about the work of Kandinsky and all these obscure artists that I'd never heard of. Um, she was, you know, she was, once she, once she kind of found her path, she was great. And we had a great relationship when I was in high school. Um, it was just when I was younger that uh, she just was struggling with it a little bit. So it's not about her being an artist. It was just about her, you know, um, the choices she made and her and her, you know, her work ethic. So hopefully, I can find help Lila find the right way to do that. So, so go ahead, Kimber. What is your uh, two questions actually? One's kind of tangent, just related to that, which is how's your relationship with your mom related to personal questions you're um, willing to share? Yeah, I mean, my mom passed away uh, uh, four years ago. <clears throat> so, but we we had a we were very close when she, when she passed. My dad and I don't speak, but. Um, that's for a variety of reasons. Yeah, no, it's too much. Uh, but my other question is has to do with your uncle. You know, kind of one of the themes that we find is that some person or opportunity, whether it was a chance encounter or a role model that maybe wasn't the expected one, has a difference in your life. Uh, and if it wasn't for those people, where where would you have fallen, right? Uh, have you, you know, one of the things I look for, and it's hard to find, you know, what are take those opportunities what have you found opportunities where you can kind of pass that on and what are your thoughts about that yeah i mean it's it's something i'd like to do more of i mean i i do take my role as a mentor very seriously um you know i have a pretty sprawling department you know but even before when i was on the law firm when i was at a big law firm and you know my, my early part of my career was in new york and, and denver and you know i've always um enjoy the opportunity to help share what I've learned um, with, uh, you know, with younger people in the legal profession. Um, when I was, you know, 
in college, I very much enjoyed being a teacher. I worked with the at Penn. We had this thing called West West Philadelphia Tutoring Project, where I would go um, a couple times a week to tutor kids in, in West Philadelphia Middle School, um, with a middle school in West Philadelphia that was a you know fairly fairly um, under resourced school. Uh, and then I I loved being a teacher. And at some point in my career trajectory, you know, if I um, if I don't go totally insane and try to start my own business. I, I'd like to I'd like to be a teacher. Um, again, I think going back to teaching a course at a law school or something would be really fun. Yeah, that's where we met actually. Um, I mean, you know, one I was never I didn't try CrossFit until I moved to Park City and kind of found my way over to this this gym over here which is it is a good place. I mean, it, it's a it's a good group of people. Mostly, um, I mean, CrossFit gyms. I, I mean, Amy and Sam, correct me if you disagree with this, but they tend to have a lot of different cultures depending on who who owns the gym and who the coaches are and who goes there. The one here is mostly people who, who love to ski and ride bikes and you know just want something to get them to make them better at that. So. Yeah, the five a.m. crowd. Yeah. It's not like the mixed martial arts crowd, you know. It's it's definitely like you know the the more those morning classes are like professional people that have jobs and stuff to go to. And you're back to the five fifteen, right? From sleeping into six thirty. Trying to man, that's early though. Um, that's early. I mean, I I went to the five fifteen on Monday and fell asleep in a conference call at one o'clock. I always find everyone's stories fascinating, whether it's my friends, colleagues, your guests. So thank you for sharing. Uh, there's this common thread that we hear with people who have had really tough upbringings, and it's whether it's innate in us or uh, you know that nature versus nurture is. You see this compartmentalization of I got to create a schedule to create my own safety, so I know what. I know what's predictable because kids, we really thrive on structure. So our families who create that structure, it's a mm. kind of that different environment. And you see that a lot. And, and I did a, you know, master's in personality theory and stuff like that. So I always find these so fascinating, but I find this common thread and I see it in, even in myself because I had a, my upbringing is not a happy story. It's good today, but what was rough, right? Very similar, but, but lots of drug abuse and stuff like that. Um, and I know others in this room have shared their stories, and we all have this common thread where we can try to control our environment and our outcome because this over here is so much chaos. And then we go to college. I don't know. I did. I did the same thing. I went crazy, drank too much, whatever. I mean, it's like I'm free. Oh my gosh, right? And so thank you for sharing that because it's just it's this common thread. But we all we share it, and and it's how we and it's that nature and nurture that we bring to kind of bring ourselves into some balance and then what we do from there. And I love that you haven't held on to it and that you had that mentor. The mentor is so important. Like, you know, I've had mentors, but wasn't anybody in my family. It was teachers, right? Who said, you're smart, knock it off. You're quit being angry. You know, those kinds of things. So I, I just, I loved your story. So thank you for sharing. Thank you. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I, um, like you, I, I think my, when I'm stressed out, like my, my, partner and my daughter know it because they'll because I'm like aggressively cleaning and trying to control the environment around me right or, you know and I live and die by my calendar I probably have more in common with the Dylan at age 10 than I do with Dylan freshman in college who 
you know, party all the time and was happy with chaos. But um, it is, you know, I mean, that is one, you know, for me that that having that sense of control of like the space around me and the environment is is sometimes a, it, you know, it's one of my flaws, I guess, because it can, it can spill over and, you know, affect the people around me too much. Despite the challenges of your, of your upbringing and your current profession, I'm curious what um, creative or artistic skills or perspectives you carried with you. Yeah. You know, I was never, I never had any talent for art. I tried to play, a, you know, a couple of different instruments and never, those never really took. Um, you know, I, I think the the closest thing I have to a creative outlet is writing. I mean, I, I'm I'm a voracious reader of novels because, well, I don't want I, I don't I don't spend a lot of time reading nonfiction because that's what I do for a living. Um, and you know, and I you know I think you know I used to write, um, particularly in high school, I did a lot of creative writing and, and things. And you know, I, I took some creative writing courses in college. At some point, that's something I'd like to get back to. I mean, I think. You know, I joke about, um, you know, one day hitting that, that number financially where I can take a year off and go live in France and write my novel, but um, we'll get there. My, uh, my wife is, a, or my partner is a, is a writer too, and is actually in the middle, middle of an MFA program right now. So I think it's, um, it's something we share as a, a love of literature and a love of books and writing. Great question. I know, uh, you have uh, very expensive billable hours between uh, between <laughs> us and your next uh, uh, your end of the day. But uh, thank you so much for uh, making time for us, and thank you for uh, billing us a discounted rate uh, for this morning. Because so. <laughs> I don't think we can really afford nice you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for making the time. Thank you.